morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Alison. Uh, let me start with a question. If I stood up here and I called you dear idiots, how would you react? Uh, we've spent the past three weeks reading and thinking about Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I want to quickly recap uh, where we've been and sort of set the scene for this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul, whose life has been turned upside down, inside out, by his dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, he has helped to establish a number of local congregations, local Christian communities in an area called Galatia. And that was during his first missionary journey. But after he had left that region, a bunch of people who should have known better have infiltrated the churches there. And they were confusing the young, the new, the recent converts with their warped and polluted and less than helpful teaching. And the problem was that people were buying into it. And so whenever news of what was going on reached Paul, he put pen to paper and he wrote this brief yet highly emotive letter that we've been looking at together. And the key issue at stake was the gospel. The ultimate breath of fresh air that provides freedom. But in terms of seeing it in HD, in high definition, these false teachers, these Judaizers, as they have been labelled, they were distorting the clarity of the gospel to the point where people were losing sight of it. It was becoming blurred. As far as Paul was concerned, the gospel comes into sharp focus in Jesus. It's all about faith in Jesus, in who he is and in what he has done. And whenever anybody comes along who implies other ways, who implies, listen, Jesus isn't enough. If someone comes along who suggests you've got to embrace a Jesus plus gospel, then Paul gets upset. He gets very frustrated, and you soon know about it. And as a result, Paul isn't always known for his tact or his diplomacy. And if something direct needed to be said or needed to be written well, then he said it. He wrote it, not because he's unable to control his emotions, not because he's rude, but because he passionately cares about the gospel. And he passionately cares about people's need to see it and live it for what it is without any interference whatsoever. So in the first five verses of chapter 3, which is on page 1169 in the Pew Bibles, and that's where we have reached. In the first five verses of chapter 3, Paul lets fly. And I want you to imagine that you are receiving this, what some have called a diatribe, a harangue. Just imagine you're receiving this from someone that you actually respect and someone you really want to listen to. Let's pick it up, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Or as the J.B. Phillips translation says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Great. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. And he goes on to say this. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. 
I would like to learn just one more thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish it by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by observing the law or by your believing what you heard? Now, last week, uh, James, James Greenwood, read from the message, so therefore it must be okay to read from the message. Uh, Eugene Peterson's amplified paraphrase. Well, let me read you and show you uh, the first five verses uh, according, according to this, uh, which is a form of translation, and I love it. You crazy Galatians. Did someone give you a hallucinatory drug? Something crazy has happened. For it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Christ in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing, you crazy Galatians? And as I say, you can just imagine them receiving that and just thinking, Paul, tell us how you really feel. And the point is, they were in no doubt how Paul felt. One thing is for sure, they knew that Paul wasn't messing about here. This really mattered. And the reason that it mattered, and the reason Paul is so, in a sense, in your face in the colourful language he uses, is because he is absolutely convinced that these Christians in Galatia have started to accept and adopt the teaching of the Judaizers. That faith in Jesus is not enough in order to be accepted before God. That something else is required. And from Paul's perspective, that is totally crazy, and anyone who swallows it, and this is strong, is off their heads. But before we're too hard on these Galatian Christians, I want us to see how the line that was being peddled by these Judaizers was actually quite attractive. It had its appeal. Because there is something within the human psyche that feels, and this is not only relevant to a Galatian context 2,000 years ago, I would suggest this mindset still exists. But there's something within the human psyche that feels that the standard, that the criteria that God has set, that God has established for acceptance before him, well, it's far too simple. It's, It's far too accessible. It's far too straightforward. Surely I need to contribute something. I need to do something. I need to bring something to this relationship. Surely there really is no such thing as a free lunch, is there? Well, the Judaizers didn't think so. And at one level, they were okay with the fact that people, and Gentiles in particular, they were okay with the fact that people were believing in Jesus. That was good. Problem was, as far as they were concerned, it wasn't good enough. And so they were teaching and they were insisting that more is required. That these people needed to do something. They needed to be circumcised. Their eating habits needed to be rethought. 
that observing the Jewish law was now important. You see, as far as they were concerned, it was Jesus plus a whole lot of essential add-ons. And the issue was that had its appeal. Because you see, people struggled and people still do struggle with the idea, phrase James used last week, they really struggle with this idea of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Seems far too good to be true. And therefore, whenever someone comes along who suggests, listen, here's a list of things you can do. Here's a list of things you must do. Here's a list of things others should do in order to be accepted by God. Well, then, sometimes we get taken in by it. And the Christians in Galatia clearly were, and it really upset Paul. And he was upset upset with them for being so easily deceived, but he was probably far more annoyed with those who had promoted this nonsense. And the issue for us as individuals and the crucial issue for us as a church is that we have got to constantly ensure and be on the guard against any hint whatsoever of a Jesus plus gospel. We have looked at this. But we have got to be so careful that we do not promote a Jesus plus anything else gospel. The minute that we insist on something extra on anything more than justification by grace alone through faith alone, the moment we add anything to that we lose high definition. We start blurring reality. And the specific image that we need to see clearly I said this all comes into sharp focus in Jesus as far as Paul was concerned. But the specific image that we need to see clearly and we need to keep before us is Christ crucified. Now have a look at with me at verse 1. You foolish Christians, Paul says, who bewitched you? Strange term in itself. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. As Peterson put it, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Christ in clear focus in your lives. Literally, the crucifixion was placarded as if it were a visual image. And the point is, you have lost sight of it. And therein lies the real problem. Now many of the uh, early church fathers and the early theologians of the New Testament, like Tertullian, they developed the sign of the cross as a visual and an expressive way of ensuring that the cross was constantly kept within their field of vision. So Tertullian wrote this, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of life, we trace upon the forehead the sign of the cross. And I love that. I love the idea of the cross being constantly at the forefront of our minds in the everyday of life. Apparently, Tertullian once said, we Christians wear out our foreheads with the sign of the cross. Now, I know whenever you mention the sign of the cross in certain situations, and maybe even here, 
that some people begin to get a little uncomfortable. We don't do that around these parts. Certain other people do, but we don't. Let me ask you a question. Why not? Why not? The sign of the cross dates back to early Christianity, and it developed from being traced on the forehead to becoming a sign that was made by touching the head and then the stomach and then both shoulders. And even as I do that, I sense a little unease. Now, I know that since the Reformation, the sign of the cross has generally been rejected by Protestants. Although I think it is worth noting that Luther, key reformer, expressed his own positive personal views regarding the sign of the cross. But I have a suggestion to make this morning. One that may lose me my job, but anyway. I have a suggestion to make. Why don't we recover and practice the sign of the cross as a visual way of keeping the cross before us? In everyday life. Why not? Maybe an idea worth considering. In a world of constant distractions, in a world where we are bombarded with visual images every single day of our lives, the one image that we as Christians need to keep before us is the cross of Christ. And the sign of the cross may be one way to remind us of its importance. So why not incorporate it into your personal prayer time. Why not begin or end your personal devotions by making the sign of the cross? Listen, I'm not suggesting you go public. Although, why not? Because it could make for a really interesting discussion. Right, quickly, back to the text. You see, Paul was wanting to get these fully crazy, idiotic Galatians to refocus on what was central to their Christianity. Because the moment that you lose clear sight of the cross, the moment that you lose clear sight of the cross is the moment that you lose sight of the gospel. And so John Stott writes, there is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. And right throughout this letter, as we will discover and even we have discovered, Paul is at pains to draw people's attention to the cross. Even from the word go, right back at the very beginning of this series, right as Paul is writing his introductory remarks, bringing his initial greetings, what does he say? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. An immediate reference to the cross. And time and time again, here in this letter, in fact, of all of Paul's letters, the importance of the cross is stressed. Because, for example, what does he actually write to the church in Corinth? He says, listen, do you know what my message is? My message is the message of the cross. What is it I preach? I preach Christ crucified. And he went on to stress how he resolved, listen, I want to know nothing. I want to know absolutely nothing except Christ and him crucified. You see, if we want to see the gospel in high definition, we absolutely must maintain our focus on the cross. And that's why we eat. And that's why we drink every single week here at Windsor. Communion is an integral part of our morning or evening service every Sunday. Because you see, whenever we see 
whenever we touch, whenever we taste bread and wine, we recall, we remember, and we reflect upon the cross. Broken body, shed blood. Before our very eyes, so to speak, Christ is clearly portrayed as crucified. And in a few moments we're going to have that opportunity again. And I hope and I pray that what takes place around this table never ever becomes routine. And also that we never lose sight of what this actually refers to. You see, the key issue for Paul here is to get the Galatians to recall not just what Jesus did, but why he died. Signs and symbols don't just remind us what happened. They encourage us to reflect on the purpose, the reason, the message, the implication that lies behind the sign or the symbol. And the cross stands as an eternal reminder that sinners, that's us, can now be justified before God and by God. Not because of anything they've done. Not because of anything we ever can do, but because of what Christ did once when he died. That's why it is so important that we have the crucified Christ in clear focus in our lives. For some reason, we've struggled with that. We do struggle with that. We don't like, maybe some people don't like, images of a crucified Christ. And yet it's the thing Paul says, you've got to keep this in focus. You've got to have this clear in your minds. Because on the cross, it is, it was finished. Christ's work, the work of salvation, it was completed on the cross. That is the significance of the crucifixion. Anything that had to be done in order to save us, in order to rescue us, was done. And so anybody who comes along and tells you that something else is required, like circumcision, like a kosher diet, or if anything else is required in order to be fully accepted by God, would you know what they're doing? They're polluting, they're distorting, they're denying the gospel. They are, to quote the NIV, that strange phrase, they are bewitching you. And if you fall for it, if you buy into it, if you adapt it, if you accept it, then you're out of your mind. Now in the next section of the letter, Paul then goes on to ask a series of questions. Look at these with me. It's going to be really quick. Paul then goes on because I want us to take our time. I want us to take our time around this table this morning. But Paul then goes on to ask a series of, of questions, rhetorical questions, as he tries to realign these people's thinking. And from verses uh, 2 to 5, as you'll see, he appeals to their experience of Christianity. In, in the version that I read, and maybe the version that you have, verse 4 actually says, Did you experience so many things in vain? You see, Paul knows how powerful experience is in our lives. You cannot deny what you have experienced. You can't. And one of the most powerful experiences is conversion. Because conversion changes your past and it shapes your future. 
And so Paul starts with their experience of conversion by asking them, how did this actually happen in your life? How did it come about? Let me ask you only this, Paul says in verse 2, and then comes this heart-searching question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? And that little phrase, that little expression, receive the Spirit, is absolutely crucial. Because for Paul, receiving the Spirit is the identifying characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, living within you. And so on another occasion, as Paul wrote to some Christians in Rome, he put it like this, and there's a little ambiguity here, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So here in Galatians 3, 2, Paul's asking them, talk to me about your experience of conversion. Tell me this, did you become a Christian? Did you receive the Spirit? Did you become a Christian by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Your experience was real. You are Christians. There's no debate about that. But the real issue is here. How did the experience take place? What triggered it? Was it by observing the law? In other words, was it by getting circumcised? Was it by eating the right food? Was it by eating the right food with the right people? Or was it by believing what you heard? Was it by hearing with faith? faith and the Galatian Christians know the answer to that question it's a kind of no-brainer because they clearly received the spirit they became Christians long before the Judaizers ever appeared on the scene peddling hawking this distorted gospel these people have become Christians via believing what Jesus Christ had done for them on the cross the gospel is Christ crucified. The gospel is Christ's finished work on the cross. The law says do this. The gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. And Paul makes the point that their conversion experience was triggered by what Jesus did and not by anything they did or ever will be able to do. And that is so, so important. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling, to quote one songwriter from a few hundred years ago. And two weeks ago as I I looked at Galatians 1, I, I asked you this question. Do you have a story, do you have a conversion story to tell that hinges on Jesus? Do you? Based on this part of the letter, let me rephrase that question a little. Do you have a story to tell, a conversion story to tell, that hinges on a crucified Christ? The Galatians received the Spirit. The Galatians experienced conversion through faith via believing in what Jesus had done for them on the cross, where he gave himself for their sins, which Paul had said right at the very beginning. And that can be, or that absolutely needs to be part of our story. We become Christians through faith in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And Paul then goes on to talk about their ongoing Christian life, their post-conversion experience. And so he asks another insightful question in verse 3. He says, After beginning with the Spirit... 
Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort or by flesh or in the flesh is probably a better translation. In other words, after starting out in the right way, are you now heading off road in a different direction? Instead of living your ongoing Christian life in the spirit, are you now trying to live it in the flesh? Don't start with the spirit and then ditch the spirit. Don't try living this Christian life to the beat of someone else's drum. Or as Paul says a little later on in his letter, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And do you know something? That is the real challenge. What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like to follow the Spirit's leading in every part of your life? So often... I end up living the Christian life in the flesh, ignoring the Spirit, doing my own thing or doing someone else's thing. And Paul says, listen, you see, if you head down that route, you're beat. For Paul, the Christian life, if you want to define it, is life in the Spirit. It's about keeping in step with the Spirit. Again, what does that mean? What does that look like in our daily lives? What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? It's about dancing to his tune, not someone else's. And as this letter continues, we discover more and more about what that looks like. And so that's where the rest of this letter kind of goes, or certainly in chapters 5 and 6. But for now, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you have received the Spirit. The question I just want to leave you with is this. Is the Holy Spirit calling the shots in your life? Or is it self? Or is it others? Who's calling the shots? Time is almost gone. But as Paul continues, he then injects what some people think is a master stroke into his argument. He introduces Abraham. Verse 6. Seen by the Jews as the father of their nation, the quintessential Jew. But what is it that Paul actually says about this great patriarch? What does he say about Father Abraham? Well, he quotes Genesis 15, 6, and those who were here during that journey should hopefully remember this verse. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The point is this. Abraham is pronounced right with God, acceptable to God, not because he got circumcised, that didn't happen until chapter 17, not because he had kept the law, that hadn't been given yet by Moses, but simply because he believed God. He believed the promises of God and he surrendered his entire life to those promises. Abraham was accepted by faith. And therefore, as Paul writes in verse 7, those who believe, all those who believe, are children of Abraham. Not those who believe and are then circumcised. Not those who believe and then keep the law. But simply those who believe. And therefore, what Paul was really saying here, and this was so important, Paul was really saying, this gospel, this is for all. This gospel is open to all. It's not for a select few. It's not for a specific race. It's not for a particular culture. It's for all who believe. 
And then Paul redirects our attention back to the cross. And in a sense, this is where I want to finish before we move into a time of communion. And as he does this, he connects Abraham to Jesus. And again, this is really important for us. Some people struggle with the connection between Abraham and Jesus. But Paul connects the two in that Paul says, listen, the law is a curse. Because nobody can keep the law in its entirety, so we're all beat. But Jesus, by dying on the cross, he becomes a curse for us. In other words, he absorbs the curse. So it's not about us keeping the law. It's not about what we do. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And in becoming a curse, Paul goes on to say, according to verse 14, that Jesus redeemed us. Word James looked at last week. It means liberated us via laying down his life. He paid the price of freedom. And so, Paul says, the blessing that was given to Abraham now comes to us. Gentiles. How does it come to us? Through Jesus, who became a curse for us. And therefore, by faith, by believing, not by doing, you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, is what he goes on to say. In other words, that's how you become a Christian. And this is the message of the cross. So the true gospel, the ultimate breath of fresh air that brings freedom, will always, if you want to know whether a church preaches the gospel, whether somebody believes the gospel, then it's going to ensure that the cross and a crucified Christ is constantly seen in high definition. And so what I want us to do right now is go back there and to eat and to drink together and to make sure that the crucified Christ is in clear focus in our lives. And as we do that, I would like us to just sing the first two verses of this well-known hymn.